you know, we don't need 16 brands of deodorant, something like this. Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting to you internationally around the world on the Big Talker 1067 FM in Wilmington, North Carolina, and on Saga 960 AM in the Peel region, Ontario, Canada. I'm one half of your host, Yael Osaski, coming in hot from North Carolina, and I'm joined as always by my colleague, David Clement, who's up there in Toronto, Ontario. David, how goes it? Oh, it's going well. It's going well. Coming coming off a little bit of a staycation, which was very nice. Um, but also some bad news that Ontario will not reopen outdoor activities yet until cases uh, go downward um, more significantly. So no golf for me, which I'm, I'm... Oh, my goodness. Pretty upset. I don't know. I don't know how you're able to cope with that. I mean, it's it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Um, just not like there's really nothing to do other than parks. But I'm a little too uh, I'm a little too big for the swings at the parks. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, it's it's tough going. But you know what? Um, the light is at the end of the tunnel. It looks like Ontario is going to be opening up vaccine access to those in the 30 plus bracket, uh, of which I fall into, um, within the next two or three weeks. So that's a big positive. I might be able to get a first dose here soon. So, um, trying to keep my head up. Yeah, you know? of course. Well, um, if you were looking for a light at the end of the tunnel, it's right here in North Carolina, looking good, beautiful outside. Uh, not many restrictions apart from a uh, mask mandate in uh, various stores and restaurants. Of course, in many cafes and restaurants that I've seen, nobody cares and nobody's wearing them, but uh, still some limits on capacity for the moment. But uh, I tell you, it's a, it's, it's a different world. It's, it's uh, very cool to see. Again, it's been, I think, eight months since I've been uh, in, in the States. And to, obviously, we've been living through something totally insane and uh, brought us to the brink of, of, you know, insanity in our own minds. Thankfully, you got a little staycation. Of course, I was uh, on the plane and enjoyed a couple of days uh, here in, in the South. Yeah, it looks like things are looking up, David. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it must feel must feel nice to be home. Um, it's, yeah, it's, I'm just jealous because we are so we are still so far behind. Although the vaccine procurement here in Canada is getting better, we are still so far behind um, our American friends and family. And so, it is tough to watch. Um, I mean, I've had friends fly to Florida to go and see the Jays play um, in Dunedin, which is their kind of temporary home uh, for the baseball season. And it's it's hard to watch. It's hard to watch. <laughs> yeah. I know uh, I was actually planning uh, for the weekend to try to go to the Darlington Raceway for the uh, the beautiful uh, spring race in Darlington, South Carolina, which is always a good race. And uh, seems to me it's about 100% capacity. So I can go, <laughs> I can go and enjoy the race uh, full on with with many of my fellow racing fans. But I tell you, this is a, it's a different age, David. And, and you know, it's been so long since I've been in the United States or in North America at all, really. And what I find so amazing still happens every time I go to the grocery store. The amount of products that exist 
the quantity, the choice, it is just something unrivaled in many other parts of the world. And I don't think many people stop and realize that when I go to the store and I can see, you know, 87 different types of cereal, or when I see eight different types of string cheese, not to mention the beautiful hard seltzers that I'm a huge fan of, it's like this is consumer choice. And I know a lot of people might be overwhelmed by it. I know that was a Bernie Sanders talking point that, you know, we don't need 16 brands of deodorant, something like this. But I think it's beautiful. This is the, the choice. It's the different brands, that brand freedom. It's something that many people just don't appreciate sometimes. You know, if you only had one choice, uh, you know, that's kind of how it was in the Soviet Union. And it is like in places like Cuba and all the like, I don't know. I don't know if you ask me, David, I'm, I'm all in on choice. I think it's a, it's a beautiful endeavor. Yeah, it is fun. I mean, I, I think back to I've done quite a few road trips through the U.S. and there's nothing quite like walking into, uh, I'll use West Virginia as an example, a West Virginia truck stop or, or gas station and just being in awe of everything on the store shelves uh, in terms of product variety, flavors, taste, you name it. Um, if, if there's a niche market out there, there's some American producer looking to fill it. So um, certainly appre- appreciated on my end. I, I think it's a, bi- a big thing is a, a lot of people, whether you're in Canada or the US, um, you don't necessarily see those parts of the world where you don't have those, um, th- those choices. So, I mean, uh, for our listeners, like I've been to Cuba, I think four or five times you and I have gone to Cuba on the same trip um, together. Um, you look at like the, the beer availability there uh, in terms of what's created domestically. There are two beers. There's the green one and the red one. Um, there's Cristal, the green one, and Bucanero, the red one. And that's it. Uh, and so just like that immediately puts life a little bit into perspective where it's like, oh, okay, unless the, the government is permitting the import of some other product, um, you have the choice between the green beer or the red beer. Um, and, and that kind of puts it into perspective and then multiply it by things that matter exponentially more than your, your selection of beer. And all of a sudden you start to realize that uh, we live in some some pretty great countries at the end of the day. That is true. And uh, it's something that we're, we're definitely celebrating uh, each and every day. Uh, we're now in May. Looks like things are looking up around the world. I know, uh, David, you're begrudging a bit the vaccine procurement and distribution. Uh, but uh, look, things are, are getting better. And we're getting out of this. And uh, in no, no due time, David, you'll be out on the golf course. Uh, hopefully, I'll be back at the squash court. Uh, we can get back to uh, our normal lives. Uh, if you guys want to go back and listen to some of our recent episodes, you can go to consumerchoiceradio.com. We've got two great interviews coming up this hour. Uh, for one, we'll be speaking with Mr. Steve Sandhair. He's the CEO of Associated General Contractors of America. We'll talk about the lumber crisis. We'll talk about the PRO Act and what it means for unionization and contractors' rights. And then we'll also speak with North Carolina's own Rick Henderson, award-winning journalist. Uh, He's behind deregulator.net on Substack, provides very good commentary. Uh, So those are coming up in segment number two and three. So David, I've got a couple quick stories I wanted to share with you. I think this one is going to impact a lot of the work that we do. I'm sure you saw it, the headlines, Bill and Melinda Gates, no more. 
filing for divorce. Uh, one of the the richest men <laughs> and certainly one of the, the richest power couples who are influencing, I mean, I would say they essentially are influencing half of the pandemic response with how much money they've spent on uh, vaccines and investments and distribution and even before COVID, all the different uh, vaccinations that they were doing. Uh, but this is a monumentous divorce. I mean, this is almost Bezos era, billions of dollars. I, I haven't read more into what the what the terms might be. I, I'm, I'm sure those details are forthcoming. Uh, but this will definitely shake up a lot of the philanthropic world and definitely the tech world. Man, uh, it's going to cost him a pretty penny. That I know. Yeah, and it's so funny to see the people on Twitter um, taking screenshots of the direct messages they're sending to either Bill or Melinda, depending on their sexual preference. <laughs> Basically saying like, sup, Bill, <laughs> or sup, Melinda. Uh, as as a means of like making a, making a joke, but like also being like, oh, they're single now. Like I would like to flirt with Bill Gates. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, nobody, nobody thought uh, that it's, before. It's yeah. quite funny. Uh, I find it hilarious. But uh, so best best meme I've seen obviously is of uh, Bill Gates who uh, types into Bing, uh, single vaccinated women in my area, and then you see all the women's arms. Uh, sort of beam up with their 5G. <laughs> the microchips. Uh, <laughs> the microchips the that microchips. Uh, uh, some people oh, claim boy. are in there. Yeah. But yeah, good on good on him. Uh, you know, wish him all the best. Yeah, I'm sure the conspiracy theorists and the Tin Hatters are all over this. Like, oh, what does Melinda know? Like, did they break up because she knows that Bill Gates is planting microchips in people? Um, and for those who don't know, we're obviously joking. We're making fun of the people who believe those things. Um, but yeah, it is, it is between that and, and the Jeff Bezos divorce um, seem to be the, the highest profile divorces. And I think I saw a headline. I have not verified it yet, but um, there is no prenuptial agreement uh, of any sort. So that Ooh. means that the assets are up for grabs and they'll have to figure out who gets the yacht and who gets the, the Hamptons beach house and who gets the stock options and, all of that fun. Yeah. And I think what's also really important is that, you know, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, has something like $47 billion in assets. And they're a huge funder of uh, groups like the World Health Organization, which we've criticized uh, many times. Um, they fund a lot of uh, certainly the, I would say, the causes against uh, vaping as well. Most of the stuff with COVID, obviously, they put a lot of money into vaccine distribution, Many good things, many bad things, a lot of money into education, actually charter schools. So they're actually very good on that. Uh, but really a behemoth of an organization. I mean, there's entire countries that depend on grants from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I wonder what that'll be like in the future. Because, uh, yeah, that's a lot of money. Uh, certainly one of, one of the richest guys in the world. Uh, who knows if, if that just gets cut in half or you know goes wherever it is. Yeah, uh, all the power to them. I know it's... Uh, it's kind of strange to get divorced so late. You know, that's, that's what I, I saw a lot of people on there. It's like, can you imagine being married for 40 years or something? And then you get the divorce that much. Yeah. Jeez. That is weird. It's going to hurt. That is, that is kind of weird. You figure out once you make it, once you make it 30 years, you should be able to make the rest. But um, I have not been married for remotely that long. So I cannot speak to uh, <laughs> speak to whether or not that is in fact the case. We'll have to, we'll have to revisit this in uh in 25 years or so so i can weigh in <laughs> consumer choice radio episode 
9,747. Uh, tune in for that one. Yeah, then you can give us give <laughs> us your wisdom here. Uh, so yeah, about uh, two and a half minutes before we go to break. Again, we have uh, two great interviews coming up, uh, talking with Steve Sandhair, CEO of the Associated General Contractors of America, Rick Henderson, deregulator.net. Uh, quick things, David, I'm back in the US, as I mentioned, and I am back to watching the atrocious display of apparent entertainment and politics that is cable news. I got to tell you, my brain is already fried. I've only watched segments of it. I don't know how people can do this day in and day out. There's something that's got to change here, which is cable news, because it, it's just so many levels of insane, whether you're watching MSNBC or Fox or CNN. Um, I'm, I'm very happy that we have a radio platform uh, that can kind of stand, stand on its own leg. But man, I, the people who are subjected to this daily, and that's the only way they get their news, kind of feel bad for Yeah, them. it's bad. It's, it's getting bad. It's to the point where, I, and I know I've mentioned this before, you turn on CNN or Fox, and, and very often you'll find them doing segments about, can you believe what this person at CNN or Fox said? And it's like, wait, I thought we were supposed to be doing the news. Uh, and it seems like there's just a weird tendency to be like to to talk about what the competitor news agency, what one of their hosts said or didn't say, whether it be Anderson Cooper and his comments about the Olive Garden or Tucker Carlson about wearing masks on a plane. What's the Olive Garden? I don't even remember that oh, one. What was that? Didn't he get dinged? He got or Denny's or something like that. He said like, oh, yeah, these people. They, they, they raided the Capitol building and then they just had a nice lunch at the Olive Garden. Uh, and people found it particularly <laughs> objectionable. And it was like, how dare he talk about the, these, basically implying that Anderson Cooper was some sort of elitist because he was equating um, who he was describing as like dumb, evil people eating at the Olive Garden. Um, it was one of those weird faux outrage moments where it's like, does anybody? I doubt he has been to an Olive Garden, so I'll definitely say yes, at that. Some point, um, but I doubt it's. It's probably not been, uh, not been recent, given his uh, his career and uh, how how comfortable I assume that he is living financially. He's probably spending a little bit more money than the Olive Garden. Yeah, well, we'll see. Speaking of the Olive Garden, uh, we're going to head out to commercial break now. Uh, Keep listening to Consumer Choice Radio. Back for your segments here in just a bit. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting on the Big Talker 106.7 FM and Saga 960 AM in the Peel region, Ontario, Canada. We are privileged today to be speaking with Stephen E. Sendhair. He's the Chief Executive Officer of the Associated General Contractors of America. Stephen, thanks so much for coming on the program. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So there's a lot of issues that touch uh, contractors, uh, general contractors. You know, most people don't operate through life thinking about how much contractors do in, in our economy and our society. Um, if you could just give a, a quick moment to explain your organization, who you represent, uh, I think that would be very helpful. Right, sure. Uh, so I represent the Associated General Contractors of America. We have 89 chapters in all 50 states, Puerto Rico, 
and the District of Columbia. Uh, we are the nation's largest commercial construction trade association. Uh, we are members that do um, all types of construction work, roads, bridges, transit, dams, water systems, multifamily housing, office buildings, schools, hospitals, et cetera. Uh, and um, uh, to your point about people don't think about what uh, contractors do, actually what they do is they build and maintain your quality of life. Um, I mean, I, I couldn't, we couldn't have you on the program and not ask what seems to be the, the, the looming question in the construction world, at least, what is going on with lumber right now? Yeah. Um, if you could share some of your insights as to what's going on, maybe what some solutions could be, because I know uh, for a lot of a lot of friends and family, in terms of my own life, they're seeing just the cost of something like renovating a kitchen or a deck increase two, three times. Yeah, that's accurate, and it's not just the price, but it's availability. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, through the pandemic, you had it significant increase in residential construction, both new construction and renovations. You know, people with lots of spare time in their hands and stuck at home decided that, uh, hey, maybe I can, uh, uh, you know, add an addition to the house or put a new deck in, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, uh, so the demand obviously has increased. Uh, the supply continues to be limited because of tariffs, particularly on demand and number. Um, we have, uh, we and other interested groups, the National Association of Home Builders in particular, have reached out to the administration, um, alerting them to this problem, to this challenge, uh, and uh, seeking relief, uh, asking them to uh, try to um, uh, adjust the tariffs on, on uh, Canadian lumber so that we can increase the supply and hopefully increase availability and get prices back to a stable. Um, and uh, n another thing that's, you know, related to that is obviously you have a, a lot of younger people that are going out and buying houses for the first time and uh, they're being faced with the costs. And uh, there's been a, a bill that has been floated around. Uh, we would say it is definitely informed by much of the bad legislation out there in California. And this is the, uh, obviously the PRO Act. This has to do with contractors, has to do with labor relations, has to do with the ability to form a union, to be able to negotiate, collectively bargain, all of this. And I know that this has been on uh, the, the top of the agenda a bit in Congress, and certainly Joe Biden is in favor. Why is it that uh, something like the PRO Act would be harmful, not just for contractors, but also for consumers who actually depend on many of the products um, or services that are provided by contractors? Yeah, uh, great question. And um... To, just to expand on its reach, the PRO Act affects every business, every employer in the country, um, and uh, it, it has an innocuous name. Uh, PRO stands for protect, protect the right to organize, and uh, workers in the United States have a federal right to uh, organize, uh, choose a union, and bargain collectively if they choose to do so, uh, and that's an important um, caveat. Um, they get to decide whether or not they want the union to represent them. And uh, what the PRO Act does, it goes far beyond protecting that right. Uh, and it would provide unions with uh, um, 
the broadest and most effective economic weapons that they have ever had in tilting the balance of labor relations between employers and employees. And I can give you a few examples of what I mean by that. So first of all, it would allow strikes at any time and for any reason. So basically a union can call a strike and shut down an employer for a day, two days, a week or whatever, just to, just to increase their leverage on that employer and perhaps do it at, at, at a time to put maximum pressure on that employer, such as, let's assume um, it, it's uh, opening day uh, you know, for baseball and the security guards at the stadium decide to go on strike. Uh, guess what? They have to turn away you know, in a normal year, the 50 or 60,000 fans that show up because their insurance carrier won't allow them to open the stadium without security guards on, on, on site. Uh, that's one example. The second one, which is, is a little bit more complicated, the bill would eliminate the um, prohibitions against secondary boycotts. Let me explain how that would work. So let's assume you have a hospital and that hospital contracts with a laundry service. And that laundry service provides scrubs, sheets, towels, et cetera, to that hospital. And let's assume that laundry service is non-union. Uh, their employees are not represented by a union. And let's further assume that uh, the local union that represents employees who do that type of work for other employers goes to the hospital administrator and says, we notice that you're using a laundry service uh, and our members aren't able to do the work. And we want you to use a, a signatory, uh, a laundry service that employs union workers. And the hospital administrator says, well, I can't do that. I have a contract with this laundry service. Um, uh, they do good work for us at the right price, et cetera, et cetera. And the union says, well, um, uh, then we're going to take action against you. Uh, under the PRO Act, what that union could do would be to set up a picket line in front of that hospital and try to discourage the employees of that hospital uh, from going to work. And they would likely reach out to the nurses union represents the nurses in that hospital and, and try to encourage the nurses to honor that picket line and not go to work. And let's assume that happens. And all of the nurses refuse to go into work, effectively a strike by the nurses against the hospital. The hospital administrator has a couple of choices. One, tries to work through that strike and compromise the care of the patients in that hospital. Or two, go to that laundry service and say, um, uh, I have to I have to fire you uh, because I have to bring a union laundry service uh, in into the hospital to do this work. Um, uh, and so then the hospital will have to pay whatever uh, uh, damages exist in the contract or breach contract with the laundry service, displace the employees of the laundry service. They're likely going to get laid off. Um, the nurses who honor that picket line don't get paid while they are engaging uh, in, in an effort to uh, punish another employer. Uh, and so, um, but you can see the power that the unions would have in being able to exert this type of economic pressure, which under current law is illegal. They can't try to coerce the employees of a second employer to take action against um, the primary employer with whom they have the dispute, in this case being that non-union laundry service. 
And and how would all I mean the situation that you described just sounds completely mind-boggling to me because it seems strange that you would want to have a bill where an organization could effectively maneuver the process of strikes and picket lines to generate business with a, with with a company that they currently don't have a contract with. That seems mm-hmm. quite strange to me. But how would all of this um, how would all of this implicate states that have right to work legislation? Yeah. Would it nullify those? Uh, well, actually, what it, what the bill does, uh, and, and let, let me explain what a right to work state actually means. Uh, in a right to work state, a union security clause, uh, which requires a employee as a condition of their employment to join the union and pay union dues and fees is not enforceable in state court. So in other words, if in a, in a right to work state, if an employee says, I don't wanna join the union, um, the union can't sue that employer uh, for breaching the union security clause. Under the PRO Act, that provision remains intact. However, that employee who refuses to join the union would be required to pay what is known as a fair share fee or an agency fee um, for the administration and negotiation of the collective bargaining agreement. The rationale being that that employee um, benefits uh, from the the labor agreement that the union negotiates on behalf of all the employees and they should pay for that that privilege. Now, having said that, uh, in many cases, the reason that somebody decides that they don't want to join the union is because they don't want their money going to political candidates and political causes that they don't agree with. And so this would be a compulsory to the union that likely is going to end up supporting political candidates and political causes that that employee may not agree with. And as such, it you know, violates their free speech rights. Yeah, and we're speaking with Steve Sandhairs, the Chief Executive Officer of the Associated General Contractors of America. And, and to your point, Steve, that's why we had the entire Janus decision at the Supreme Court, is that we could avoid the situation where someone who does not want to join a union is forced to pay their contribution. Wow. I do want to get your take on what happened, I believe it was last month or the month before, um, down in Alabama related to the Amazon warehouse vote on unionization. It was a pretty much a, a crushing victory, uh, I would say, for uh, the actual workers uh, and, and Amazon as well. And in that case, we saw that people thought they were best served by not joining a union because their benefits were great. Their pay is very high compared to many other industries. And the services and uh, benefits that Amazon provides its workers in these warehouses seems to be very high, enough so that they don't need a union. What were your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, if I could take a step back in your, your discussion about the Janus decision, sure, sure. decision I, I need to make a, a, a slight distinction here. The Janus decision um, dealt with a, a public employee, and I think it was a member of a teacher's union in California. It's slightly different, but the, but the, the concept is the same. The compulsory payment of union dues that ended up supporting political candidates and political causes. So there, there is a slight distinction, but the, uh, the, the principle and the concept is, I think, uh, parallel. 
Uh, so with regards to the Amazon warehouse vote, um, yeah, I think you've, you've made uh, an excellent observation there. Um, uh, it was by over a two to one margin, the employees there rejected um, the opportunity to uh, choose the union to bargain collectively on their behalf. Notwithstanding the fact that um, there were lots of press reports going into that, uh, that election uh, that uh, perhaps Amazon is not the greatest employer uh, um, around and that, that these jobs are demanding and require people to work at a fast pace and, and et cetera, et cetera. But you know, the point of the matter is the employees made a conscious decision. And I think it's important to note they did it with, under the protection of the secret ballot. Um, where no one could coerce them and no one could intimidate them. And they were able to make a free choice. And I think this is another issue in the PRO Act that, that needs to have a light sh uh, shown upon it. The way that a union organizing election or representation election occurs is first the union has to get what's known as a showing of interest. And they do that by going to the employees and asking them to sign what's known as an authorization card. Uh, authorizing the union to be their bargaining representative. And if they can get 30% of the workforce to sign those cards, that triggers an NLRB election. Um, and then if the union is able to get 50% plus one of the employees to vote for the union, then the employer has an obligation to bargain with that. Beautiful. Yeah, I think, I think there's, there's a lot to chew on there. Uh, we'll definitely point our listeners over to your website. We'll put that in our show notes, consumerchoiceradio.com. Steve, thanks so much for coming on the program, and I uh, hope to have you again, get some updates on, on how all this is going to shape out. Okay, thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Well, life has nearly killed me, and my mind is putting me on, yeah. This land is your land. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting here on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM and Saga, 960 AM in the Peel region, Ontario, Canada. Uh, we had a great guest uh, in our uh, second segment there, but we're just topping off the Sunday here with Rick Henderson. He's an award-winning North Carolina-based writer and journalist, a former editor at the Carolina Journal, and he's the brains behind the politics-focused deregulator.net Substack website. Rick, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you so much, Gail. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, you're someone who is uh, very familiar with uh, the comings and goings of what's happening in the Old North State, but I know that you've begun writing more on national issues. And I wanted to get to that because I wanted to help promote your substack a bit. Um, before we get into sort of the policy wonkish stuff, because I, I know we want to keep our audience and not uh, get too much in the weeds, uh, but you know, you're someone who's had a, a very mainstream journalism career, sort of in the think tank space, journalism space, and now you have your own Substack. What has that transition been like? Kind of what pushed you in that direction, and, and how do you see it going forward? What's interesting about this is that I was uh, a blogger very, very early in the days. I started about 2002 when I was working at the uh, Review Journal in Las Vegas, Nevada, and enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh, at the time, it was really difficult to monetize anything like that. And uh, fortunately for me, I was given a lot of freedom to uh, write whatever I wanted to on the blog. And there were, there were no in-house blogs at that time at the newspaper. So they were very encouraging about uh, sort of promoting the platform, uh, promoting the newspaper, promoting my work and the like, and also to write outside of 
what you write if you're an editorial writer or a columnist on the Metro Daily, you're supposed to stay as focused as possible on local issues. Uh, I had been at Reason Magazine and Investors Business Daily. Uh, so I'd, had a, I'd written for a national audience for more than a decade before that. And so I got, I got to keep my uh, national issues chops going with the blog. But uh, since then, went back, of course, to other newspapers, was, was at Carolina Journal for almost 12 years. And uh, when the pandemic hit, uh, I just was thinking, I, I am of the age that I thought I had at least one more chapter left to write. And I'd spent uh, the past uh, dozen years essentially shoveling copy, not doing a lot of writing, uh, do, not doing much expression of my own, that I wanted to give it another chance if it was possible. And Substack made that possible. It's, that's, that's something that technology that was not available uh, in 2002 or even 2015 that made it possible for uh, a writer who had a specific uh, voice that he or she wanted to, to express could uh, find an audience or connect with an existing audience, reconnect with an existing audience, and then also monetize it, which was just uh, it was wonderful. And then the thing that's nice about Substack uh, there, and there are other platforms that will do this, but the thing that was particularly nice for me about Substack was that unlike the old days of Blogger and even WordPress, you had a platform that really, really worked. I mean, you don't, you don't have to worry that much about having to code with, uh, I still have my old Blogger site alive and you still have to do HTML with a lot of stuff there. And so, I mean, it just, you know, it, it's, you learn to do it, but it's just much more convenient to plug and play. And, and beyond beyond some of the uh, subscriber model uh, aspects as to why Substack might be becoming more popular, do you think that there is a bit of a divergence maybe in newsrooms or editorial discussions that's also driving other folks to Substack? Because we've seen some very prominent writers um, at some national outlets make the move, and some of them have been citing editorial disagreements essentially is the reason why they wanted to have maybe a little more independence. Is that something that you find in, in your own journey um, to Substack? Oh, uh, I mean, absolutely. I, uh, before we, uh, before we started uh, the, the segment, I was, I was telling Ayal that I got, I spent some time writing, making a list of people who had migrated to Substack from other publications. And I couldn't make an exhaustive enough list of the people that uh, the prominent people that I follow, just because I read a lot of journalism, but people like Andrew Sullivan and Matt Taibbi and uh, Glenn Greenwald and Matt Iglesias. Uh, and then he goes on to even Mickey Kaus, one of the original great bloggers. Uh, anyway, all these folks have done that. Some are doing it, most of them are doing it for monetary gain, but you have people like Megan McArdle, for instance, who just does a weekly newsletter uh, that, that she gives away, and it's just sort of stuff. Here's what I read this week that was interesting that I couldn't write about in my Washington Post column. And so it, it provides that opportunity. For me, it was good because um, I've been covering largely North Carolina politics with a few national uh, implications of, of things that are happening at the state level for a dozen years. And after a while, uh, because we don't have term limits in North Carolina, except for some ex executive branch officials, you have the same players quite often. And so uh, it, I was looking forward to the opportunity to be able to branch out and write about how some of these issues locally uh, play out on the national front, and then also how some national issues uh, you know, might have spurred up in, in state houses and the like. I mean, I'm a big 
I'm a big uh, supporter of, of federalism and the and the and the benefits that that provides, and the fact that you have uh, more and more freedom for localities uh, ostensibly in the U.S. than you have in a lot of places. And so I'm very interested in how federalism is going to survive administrations in Washington that try to take more and more power away from uh, individuals and, and localities. And so that, that's something that I could explore in a, in a separate writing space that I might not get the opportunity to if I'm working on something that's sort of a state focused uh, and, and limited to this one area. We're speaking with Rick Henderson here on Consumer Choice Radio. You can follow him on Twitter at Deregulator great name, and also deregulator.net, the website we're talking about. All right, so let's get into this, Rick, a little bit. I saw that uh, you actually co-wrote an article in the News and Observer uh, up there in Raleigh, and it has to do with HR1. Uh, This seems to be something that's a a big target uh, for for many people around the country. A lot of people are praising it. A lot of people are casting it as the next great election reform. Uh, Tell us what it's all about and why you think it might be problematic. Well, it's it was the fact that it got the number HR1, that it was the first bill introduced in the House, and there's S1, the same uh, legislation in the Senate. Uh, it's, it's been kicking around now for several years, but it's essentially a law that would attempt to centralize almost all election management in Washington, D.C., through the federal government. Congress would be writing most of, this, of the election laws that govern state and local elections. Now, Article 1 of the U.S. Constitution, Section 8, says that most of this is supposed to be handled by state legislatures. There are certain exemptions, of course, uh, having to do with uh, individual rights. If a state is trying to disenfranchise Black people, for instance, you can't do that. The the Voting Rights Act covers that. Uh, But essentially, the management and operation of elections is supposed to be handled at the state level. And that's why you have states that have all mail ballot elections. You have states that have almost no early voting. You have states that have uh, no excuse absentee balloting. In other words, if you just want to vote absentee, you can. You have others where you have to actually provide a reason why you're not going to appear at at an early voting site or at at a polling place on election day. So there's this this, this, uh, total uh, quilt of, uh, of mosaic of laws that exist around the country. And it's a very good thing because we find out that uh, if you have everything managed from one place and it's a one-size-fits-all situation and something goes wrong, then it's catastrophic at a national level. At a state level, it could be very problematic or troublesome. HR1 just simply tries to sweep away all those objections and uh, would set up everything from how redistricting would be handled to the length of early voting. It would mandate early voting in all jurisdictions, even places that don't have it right now. And then there are campaign finance portions of the bill that would require donor disclosure. Uh, There's an area that uh, the Supreme Court has ruled that uh, some donor anonymity is something that can be, uh, that that should be protected, uh, especially if you are not directly contributing to a political candidate, but if you're contributing to a cause such as the Center for Consumer Choice. If you're contributing to a a 501c3 or a c4 and you're trying to uh, promote some ideas, you should be allowed to to do so anonymously if you choose. And that would actually sweep some of those protections aside as well. So it's a real mess. Uh, uh, Bob Hall, who is the progressive retired uh, former head of the Democracy NC Group, and I wrote this op-ed, and we just wanted to say these decisions should be left 
to state legislatures. Now, he and I differ on the bill itself. He would like to actually have Congress do some of these sorts of things, but he thought the bill was just too big and did too much. And so we came together as sort of a, someone from the libertarian side and someone from the progressive side saying, uh, look, this is something that uh, that Congress shouldn't uh, should keep its hands off of. And it's it's funny we hear you bring up the the donor privacy aspect of this. Um, and I have I have had this conversation with many uh, progressive colleagues or friends using Planned Parenthood as an example or some other um, reproductive rights charity. I don't, I get really uncomfortable at the thought of let's say someone donating to those uh, institutions or those causes because they feel it's best for them, then all of a sudden by law being doxxed and having their information or their name made public uh, and then making themselves available to harassment or all sorts of other problems from people who very passionately disagree. And, and that, that's a, a very pressing kind of progressive example where supporting your progressive cause could um, could draw you the fire of those who disagree with you by way of this law, essentially exposing your name and or information as a result. And of course, there are um, uh, other examples on, on the flip side of that. Um, I do have a quick follow-up just in terms of where you think some of the voting legislation has gone right, if you've written about that before, because Yael and I have, have gone back and forth on advanced voting, mail-in voting, all of the other options, jurisdiction, a particularly good job in terms of streamlining all of this that maybe other states or jurisdictions could look to to avoid these headaches. North Carolina did pretty well. Uh, the, we've, we have gone through some, uh, some in 2018 with the ninth congressional district from people who had not submitted them by all and was allegedly uh, and what that resulted in was essentially an election being overturned and reheld in a congressional district and so but the people involved are now in the criminal justice system if you will they have not all uh, that those haven't all been resolved but uh, North Carolina has done that sort of thing well uh, we have very open voting laws in many ways. We do, we do have no abs, uh, excuse absentee balloting. So you have a long period in which you can request an absentee ballot. There's, a, there's an online tracking system for those mail ballots that, uh, th that you can actually request an absentee ballot and then still show up at the polls on election day so long as you haven't turned that ballot in. Every, and everything is, is fairly transparent. I think we do the job pretty well. And final question here, Rick, before we go to, to break, and uh, it's been great having you on. Uh, one thing you've written a lot about is uh, sort of the national GOP and where things are going. I know you've been a, a keen observer of uh, former President Donald J. Trump, not necessarily his biggest fan, but what do you think is, is kind of the future of, of the GOP? I know we see this uh, kind of Josh Hawley wing that's trying to be a kind of replacer. I guess Ted Cruz is dining down with Trump and Mar-a-Lago. Uh, where do you think the, the GOP goes? Do you think it'll be a free market party once more, or are we still mired in the ire of Trump? Uh, we're still stuck with Donald Trump, I'm afraid, for a while, which is something that, that uh, puzzles me because... Uh, he's someone that under his watch, I mean, the Republicans lost the House, they lost the Senate, they lost the Senate largely thanks to him, uh, not inter or intervening in the wrong way in the two Georgia runoff elections that took place in January. And then the presidency, he lost the presidency as well. And yet, for whatever reason, 
Uh, well, I, I could cite reasons. I think for one thing, Republican elected officials are scared of their voters. They are afraid to actually tell voters, their voters the truth. And so I think there's a reckoning period ahead for the Republicans. Now, the Democrats have similar reckoning issues because you do have a very progressive wing that's, uh, that's, that's extremely loud and a more, uh, a more center-left uh, wing, largely dominated by, uh, by African-Americans, who are now the most conservative Democrats, which is sort of hard to believe for anyone who's studied U.S. politics. But I think the Republicans' reckoning is coming sooner. And uh, I don't know what that means, actually. I really don't know. There, there may be a time in which the GOP is in the wilderness. You have an awful lot more people disaffiliating from the Republican Party, and they may, uh, you may, they may have a hard time winning elections uh, outside of, say, state legislatures and places like that where they, can, where they have to stick to their knitting because they have to do things like pass balanced budgets, and they have to do things that, uh, that a national party doesn't. That's wonderful. And you can uh, check out more on deregulator.net. Rick Henderson's Substack site. Rick, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me very much. I really appreciate it. Yes. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Ososki and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science. Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at ConsumerCRadio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening.
through COVID-19. Hallelujah. Glory. 